Welcome to Community Connection, a podcast produced by Pine Tree Institute, focusing on how our understanding of adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, trauma-informed care, and supportive positive experiences can help improve the lives of our children, our families, and our communities. Uh, This is your host, Dr. Larry McCullough, Executive Director of Pine Tree Institute, and I'm delighted to welcome you to today's podcast, which features a conversation with Dr. Christina Bethel. Dr. Bethel is the founding director of the Child and Adolescent Health Measurement Initiative in the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins University. She brings an impressive set of credentials to this work, including a PhD, an MBA, and a Master's of Public Health. One of the aspects of her work that we at Pine Tree have been very excited about is her seminal work in documenting the impact of positive childhood experiences in counteracting some of the negative consequences of childhood trauma. This program is being recorded as the U.S. is in the middle of dealing with the worst viral epidemic in recent years, which is bound to create risk of increased traumatic experience for many children and families in our communities. So this is a particularly important time to gain some understanding of how we might alleviate some of the negative consequences of this tremendous national tragedy. Christina, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. It's fantastic to be here, especially at this time, to support in any way that I can. Great. Well, we're so happy to have you. Uh, I know that many of our listeners are familiar with the basic concept of adverse childhood experiences or ACEs and trauma-informed care, but maybe we could start with you explaining just a little bit about that uh, and maybe also what got you engaged in this work. What, What is it that drew you into this? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question, and I keep learning the answer to that myself, but my work began with wanting to really put on the roadmap of healthcare and healthcare policy the importance of social and emotional factors, because every time I looked at the data long before the ACEs study happened, it was very clear that the variations we saw in outcomes and cost of care and other outcomes were really related to what was happening to people in their social and emotional lives. And then I learned about the ACEs study, and it all kind of clicked in. And then, of course, it was years later that the neurobiological science really came in to buffer the reality of how we grow and develop to become healthy in life, early and across life, based on those early years and that attachment and that sense of safety and stability and nurturance. And so with those together, the ACEs study and the prior work that I had been doing it just really gave a coherence to my career and focus. So I think it's like a lot of people, they understand the ACEs concept and study innately, but we're living in this incredible time where that science and our own lived experience, which gives us the innate understanding, can really hook up with our practices and policies and how we do things in, in healthcare and in our communities and our businesses. So. Right now, I got involved in it just through my own lived commitment to look at a whole person, whole community, whole family way of approaching public health and health care. No, that's very exciting. And I think a lot of us had that experience. We we sort of know these things, and then we Mm -hmm. see the ACEs study, we see the neurobiology of it all, and 
just clicks. I know I had that experience myself of, oh, whoa, this mm-hmm. all clicks together. Uh, and I know you had some personal experiences that also resonated for you around all of this work. Absolutely, I did. And it's funny because I didn't really think of that early on. And I have, I'm pretty well known to be pretty intense in my work. And at some point somebody said, you know, this is because of your own childhood. And I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> and the reason why it was such a, a disconnect for me was that even though I had experienced many of the adverse childhood experiences, and I think a lot of people, I grew up in California in the late 60s and 70s and a lower income. And it was just really one of the worst times actually in history in terms of child abuse and things like that pretty well documented. And so it wasn't even that unusual. It was just like life was hard, but I happened to have a grandmother who used to come in every now and then. And basically I think as a way to uh, build my resilience, basically say everything you need inside of you, Mm -hmm. when you're hurting, go inside, you will find strength. And she also used to tell me God and you were one (laughs) Mm -hmm. and everything's inside of you. And if you don't like what's happening, you have to look at how you're viewing it and make good out of it. And so it was just, and I think she told me that since I was the teeniest little person, of course, there are pros and cons to that message, but I really believed it because when you're a child, you go, oh, it's actually good, even though it looks bad. And so it really got seated in me really early how to look at what was happening and be curious and try to figure it out so that I could find a way to relate without collapsing. So I think that, yes, I do have those lived experiences, but mostly mine is a story of, um, of resilience. And that doesn't mean that the pain wasn't in my body. And I certainly have autoimmune conditions. I have some of the outpicturings of the experiences. And so my healing work is still going on. But um, mostly I felt really blessed to be met in that with messages early in life that really were only now and then. It gave me a sense of agency and hope. Mm. Well, that really brings, brings up some of your more recent research mm-hmm. that we have been so excited about. I've, I've shared this with many groups at Pine Tree at some of our meetings, is some of your recent research on the impact of positive childhood mm-hmm. experiences. This is very mm-hmm. exciting. Um, and would love to hear a little bit about how did you come to that and And what did you find? What came out of that research? Yeah, I mean, well, from the beginning, after we developed the Adverse Childhood Experiences measures for the National Survey of Children's Health, which, by the way, was a 10-year process (laughs) to get the measures and data so that we could start studying it, at the same time, we included metrics about protective factors in families, like parent-child connection and parents attending their child's events and children having an adult mentor, as well as things like family resilience and also child flourishing, which we defined in terms of being curious and interested in learning, being able to persist when things, when you're doing tasks so you don't give up so easily, and being able to sort of regulate your emotional response and behavioral response when things don't go your way. And so with those all together, it was obvious to me in the very beginning that we had many opportunities to mitigate the impact of ACEs and that the impact was very variable. That as much as it's true that you have a higher risk of having a special health care need or chronic condition, of not engaging in school, of having all kinds of other poor outcomes, most children with ACEs actually don't. 
I mean, it's still the case with even the adult study that you're a thousand times more likely to have substance abuse, but only a teeny little proportion actually have substance abuse. It's just much more likely. And so I'm looking at positive deviance, looking at and being curious about what is that about? And every single time, even though it seems really soft, all of these issues around parent-child connection and family resilience and staying connected in difficult times just flew out of the data. And so that really became the way that my research started talking about it, was the opportunity to mitigate and build resilience. Um, not that we don't need to reduce ACEs, but I keep wondering, is it by building the positive that we will actually be able to mitigate the negative? You don't get rid of something so that the positive is there. And of course, we know that people without adverse childhood experiences, for the most part, are not flourishing. It's a dual continuum. The absence of ACEs, the absence of disease, the absence of adversity does not equal well-being. And there are people with a lot of problems who are flourishing and doing well. So it's a dual continuum, and that's been documented in literature, especially for adult health. But we hadn't done as much for child health, so I was very curious about why is it that children who flourish, despite high levels of ACEs, and what is it that's going on? And it's really about these positive childhood experiences. So the first studies were about documenting that in terms of the parent, child, and protective family factors for children as they were children using the data we had. And then there were some people, um, Dr. Sege and Jennifer Jones and uh, Dr. Linkenbach, who were colleagues of mine that I worked with on the JAMA PEDS paper, got some items into the Behavior Risk Factor Surveillance Survey in Wisconsin, which then we took and examined and created a positive childhood experiences measure through all the measurement work we do. And what we were able to show was that adults looking back on their life in terms of the positive experiences they had, which is the same thing as what we do when we measure ACEs, looking back in your life at adversity, that when they had more positive childhood experiences, which were often defined as being supported when things were hard, having someone that cared about you when things were hard mm. was the cornerstone of what made a positive, right? So it gets very interesting. But those that had more in a linear way and very strongly were much less likely to have depression and poor social and emotional support and poor relationships as adults, even at the same level of ACEs risk. So if I have adults with four or more ACEs, those with more positive childhood experiences, even in the midst of all that, were, you know, seven, over 70% less likely to have adult depression. And we know that's one of the biggest connections is ACEs and mental health. Same thing for social support, which we know is so important to our well-being all throughout life, that ACEs, unironically, which are born out of failures or gaps in the safety and stability of our relationship and trust, trust in others in life, and eventually ourselves, that they also didn't have good relationships as an adult. Now, that makes sense, but um, it's very important to, to highlight because we know loneliness and lack of belonging and lack of social and emotional support in adulthood then just catapults, and it keeps growing and growing the negative impacts. So that was super exciting. We've had 353%, the odds were 353% higher that you had social and emotional support if you had more positive childhood experiences as a child. 
And so these kind of findings, you know, a lot of people build their career on findings that are like 1.2 odds ratio. I mean, we're getting like really, and it didn't matter at every level of ACEs, the effect was the same. So even if you had no ACEs, if you didn't have positive experiences and you had no ACEs, which happens all the time, people are living in families where they don't have the ACEs. They also don't have the positive experiences. They also were much more likely to be depressed and much more likely to not have social and emotional support as an adult. So they operated independently. After adjusting for ACEs, the positive experiences still had the effect. And when I stratified by ACEs, the effects were similar across all levels. Amazing. It was, it was amazing yeah. to me, too. I was excited. <laughs> I didn't oh, know. <laughs> oh, it's fabulous work and, and very exciting on so many different levels. Of, uh, even for myself, when I first read it and, and started to really understand it, I, I have a pretty high ACEs score myself. Mm-hmm. And then I read the positive factors, and it forced me to really reframe my own narrative. I said, oh, yeah. well, you know, some, not all of the positive factors you looked at, um, but I had a few of them, and they were quite strong. Yeah. And I looked back, and I said, well, yeah, that did have an offsetting impact to a lot of the really bad things that had happened, but there were some things yeah. that really, really did offset it. So it's even reframed the way I tell my own yeah. personal narrative, and yeah. it, it really brings people into this um, in a way that's very hopeful and exciting yeah. for them. I, I love yeah. sharing it with groups because they feel mm-hmm. um, empowered. Not, not only inspired, but empowered. Yeah, Yeah, it's I was like, going to oh, say that okay. what we get is that every moment matters. And of course, from a neurobiological point of view, we're constantly regulating each other. And it's based on my experience. So my positive experience with you, the way I manage that is it, it can be positive for me, but I can, in the next five minutes, somebody can interact with me and it's negative and my body starts responding differently. So the biological impact of positive versus adverse experiences is immediate and it's in the moment. And so we realize that every moment matters, that it's through every door, every person that interacts with a child or any other person has such an impact because every interaction creates a reaction. Now, I need to try to work on having a filter in my own identity that if something's negative in my life, I don't, you know, make it into an adversity. Mm. But, but a lot of people don't have that, and they're operating on autopilot. And without the awareness of your own inner sense of identity, Early life adversity can get repeated over time, especially in the lack of the positive. But for me, most of the positive experiences were not in the family. They were at school and in the community. And what I was really excited about is even though it is true that the positive experiences in the family had a, at an individual level, had a stronger effect, it was not that much stronger than having the community and school and peer-based support. Now, we don't just want to band-aid children and build positive experiences and not address the ACEs. I still wonder, though, if the way we're going to reduce ACEs is to start to build this capacity and that somehow that's how we'll, over time, uh, you know, change things. So, But the community is so important and schools are so important, and that's what I worry about at this time is for a lot of children whose main source of positive experiences is outside of the home, mm-hmm. and they're at home right now, 
what can we be doing together to make sure that we reach out to families where we worry about them and stay connected and help them use this as a healing in place opportunity and not just a sheltering in place. Yeah. Well, and that's such a great concept really sort of takes me to my next um, thought, which is, as, as I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, we were recording this during one of the most disruptive periods of time that I personally have ever lived through. And I think that many of us have lived through. I'm curious you know, particularly given what you were just saying about now we're cut off, some people are cut off from one of the sources of positive experience. Uh, what are your thoughts about families and children who are at home and the impact and what kinds of things should we be thinking about or, or doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I do think we have an opportunity to turn this potential adverse childhood experiences into a positive childhood experiences, but it depends on how we are with each other in the relationships that are around us and how we can support families to flip their own narrative, like you were saying, to understand the power that they have to connect with each other in the difficulty as the best resource and to really understand that being together in the same home is not the same thing as connecting. Mm -hmm. The connecting is something you can really feel and that to not underestimate the power of that felt sense of connection, even if that connection is around pain and sorrow and frustration and anger, we can meet it in that container of connection that is there for the purpose of allowing the difficulty to become present. And that transforms it into an actually nurturing experience. So we have this power And families that don't have those skills now might still be interacting with other people in the environment that can help them really feel the power of their own being in those moment-by-moment ways with their children and to not just give up and say, oh, this is horrible, and proceed with habituated ways of relating that can be even more damaging. That we can, and I've seen it happen over and over, with just sort of a support, realize, oh, If I just sit, turn off the phone, turn off the TV, really get present with my child or my spouse or my whoever I'm with and just connect and sit into what is here now, that that is so powerful that, you know, Martha um, Welch, who runs the Nurture Science Program at Columbia, says that being together is not the same thing as connecting. But connecting is actually very simple and to realize the neurobiological power of it and the messiness of what might come up when you connect is actually not a problem. It's not about the content. It's about the connection. So if the content of the connection is frustration, anger, even bringing up old trauma, which new trauma can bring up old trauma. Oh, yeah. But if it's met yeah. differently this time, so it becomes hooked up to support. Like when things are hard, we support each other versus when things are hard, we you know, are even more shut off from each other or negative and moody, that that can seem like, oh, well, that's just the way it is. But it's not just the way it is, actually. It, it can be a way you can face difficulty and negative feelings in a place of connection to turn them into a positive. So that's the first thing, is to understand the power we have moment by moment and how we meet what's difficult from a place of connection and care. 
And when we can't do that because of our own past experiences with trauma, we just didn't learn those skills. They're skills. They're not moral attributes. You can learn them. There are ways that anybody touching families right now can model that, can support families, can, if you have a trusted relationship with any parent, with any child, with any person, and to be able to really help them um, stay connected with what they're feeling and presence that with another in a way that feels safe, that is going to help turn this into not being a trauma because ACEs are not trauma. It's not, an, it's not the same thing as trauma, right? A lot of people have ACEs, but then they have the buffer. And these buffers are Great these point. relational capacities. And so you have ACEs, which is a risk for trauma. And then you have the buffers that can put a wedge between that experience and trauma so it gets interrupted. So we have mm. trauma-interrupted opportunities right now. <laughs> and to the extent you have prior trauma that's not been healed, it could come up now for healing in the way we meet this new trauma. Well, There's more to say, but I think that's one big piece. Yeah. Well, that's a, what a huge insight. Well, and you, you make a distinction in one of the articles you wrote between uh, physical distancing mm-hmm. and social connectedness. Right. Which I think many people don't even, like, don't even, that doesn't even cross their mind. Uh, yeah. So I'd love, I've, and I think you're talking about that, the impact mm-hmm. of, the, and the capacity to be socially connected, even if we are physically distant. Absolutely. Um, so we have, concept. we just published a piece, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago in the Annals of Family Medicine called Physical yeah. Distancing with Social Connectedness. And actually, it was part of an ongoing body of work we were doing under our We Are the Medicine um, Research Consortium, where the heart of health and healing is relationships. And so we were able to turn our paper into something really relevant for COVID-19 because what we were focusing on is all of the uprising of virtual healthcare anyway, you know, through retail clinics and also telehealth, which is so important as, an, as a way, how can we stay connected and and really foster relationships, even though we're not in the same space. So we were already up to that. But this current, you know, COVID-19 pandemic is really full of opportunities to use remote communication to develop healing human relationships of the kind that I just spoke about. And what we need in a pandemic is not social distancing. I think that's a, a misnomer, but just physical distancing with social connectedness. And so the paper goes through all kinds of ways that even in the situations we're in with healthcare where we don't physically connect, how can we foster that? And so much of that is what I call uh, sort of your being, their well-being. So my being, my connection with myself so that I can be present with you, even if you're not present with you and you're upset and everything, is a healing it's like medicine. And so my ability in whatever interactions I do have over Zoom or phone to really stay connected to myself, not to not have feelings that are hard, but just to be present is actually a very strong medicine for helping us heal one another during this time. And we know about this from thousands of years. We now have the neuroscience behind it and even the epigenetics behind it. Of course, the psychologists have been forever, but really it's a skill. And so we really feel that the, um, this pandemic probably is going to change the face of health and healthcare and how we do yep. forever. Yep. 
and really shine a light on the capacity to foster human relationships that are caring and supportive regardless of our physical distancing. And so we do try to, we do want to try to change the language from uh, social distancing to physical distancing with social connection. Social connection. Yeah. Yeah. So as I think about, you know, for people that aren't therapists or doctors, you know, just parents, like when I talk to my kids who are sheltering in place with their kids and having them at home all day, kind of crazy. uh, Are there two or three things that I could be thinking about to, to help improve my capacity for being present? Like, what, what should I be thinking about? How do I, how do, I do that? And when I'm talking to them about being present with their kids, what, what do we do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, the first place to start is with that your being, their well-being piece, which is your own kind of capacity to, I would say, think into yourself where before you call them, you feel like you're connected to you and what you're feeling. Mm. Now, that's a skill, again, and not a moral attribute. It's actually not that easy to do when we've lived in a society that continuously keeps us in our heads. But it's there usually pretty easily if you get quiet. So you might want to practice a mindfulness practice. You know, there's all kinds of apps out there. I did this with my class recently, even just for a minute. And several students said that's the first time in my life I ever did that. And I just felt myself, I just guide them to feel yourself in your chair, connect with your body, notice your breathing, notice your feet on the ground, the weight of your body in your chair, watch the thoughts that go by but don't attach to them, watch the feelings, notice them, notice what you notice but don't grab onto it or try to solve it. Just notice it and keep coming back to what do I feel in my body? Not to fix it, not to breathe more deeply if I'm breathing shallowly, just to notice it. And really just that brought them into a place of coherence and sharing back with me that experience as well as having insight that blew them away, like even in just a minute. So practices, these micro practices of mindfulness or just body awareness. Really is important so that when we do encounter each other, when you do encounter your child and your grandchildren, that you're able to be connected to what's happening right there. So instead of going and launching into a conversation about what you heard on the TV, you say, well, where are you right now? Mm. Are you sitting or standing? I'd like, and if you have something important to talk about, you might say, I would like to talk to you and share something with you. Are you in place for that? Bring, keep bringing it back to the moment. Like, what's going on now? And if, and if it's not possible to be present, then just follow where the leading is of of them. Oh, so you're doing this, you're doing this. And so we get, you know, one of the mindfulness practices is just noticing what you notice. It's like, oh, I'm walking and I heard a sound and there was an alarm that just went off. Oh, and now you're eating this and now you're doing that. And staying connected in the moment has this magical ability to keep us more regulated neurobiologically we feel more seen and known and we're not just talking about the future or our fear and we can instead bring that fear into the moment to own it so when we own that fear or own that frustration rather than necessarily trying to figure out how to make it go away in the future but experience it now it can become actually a healing experience so your own connection to yourself 
And then just really encouraging that in the family and also structure, having structure and predictability that you know things are going to happen and you can trust them. So in a family, you can create rituals in the team right now on how the day is going to go and keep to it, which actually builds trust in a, in a family and mm. with each other. And then if it can't happen for some reason, you don't just pretend it wasn't. You say, okay, well, today we're not going to be able to do that. Is everyone okay with that? This is why, though. So it doesn't feel like, so you have some way to build trust by building structure and routines and habits that you go through together and build that trust with each other. And you could come out the other end of the pandemic in a more trusting, healthy family context. So, you know, there's so many things that can be done and play is important to play and act out your feelings to maybe do, you know, you know, games together or write poetry or do narrative, you know, journaling and share what you wrote about. Like everyone take a minute and write down how you're feeling and share about it or what you think is funny about this whole thing or what you think is really horrible that you're afraid to say. I always love to say, what's the thing in your head that you wish wasn't there and you're afraid to say? <laughs> say it anyway. That's a great question. Wow. Tell me, tell me something that's true that you're afraid to say. What's true that you're feeling that you're afraid to say and to practice it. And then once you realize it's not, not wow. only is it not scary to speak our scary truth, it builds connection. It can become actually a source of even you know, curiosity and fun. So again, back to the school continuum where we can have positive experiences in the midst of the adversity. You know, I mean, I can tell you stories about my last couple weeks with what's been going on here anyway. And I just, at one point when it was really hard, I just started laughing (laughs) because, you know, I, it just was, it was funny and hard at the same time. And to remember that they don't have, it's not one or the other and how we meet what's hard together can actually be a source of connection, and that play is really important. And I define play as engaging in something where you don't know what the outcome is and you're not able to control it. Oh, what a great definition. So it's not like, you know, so your play is really entering into a space where you're not in control on purpose and you you don't know what's going to happen. And so that's why it's fun because like a game of football, you don't know where the ball is going to (laughs) go and you get lost in it. You get lost in play and in games in ways that can really keep us in a, in a sense of connection as well. Uh, but those are just a few things. Yeah. The most important is the, um, is the presence and the connection yeah. in the moment. Yeah, I love that, that definition of play. I don't think I've ever quite heard it phrased that way, but it mm-hmm. makes total sense. And why it would be so nice and why it would be so important to take you out of the immediate moment, mm-hmm. but in mm-hmm. a healthy way, not in a distracting right. way. But right. To, to give over to something where I really don't have control, when everything else feels like we have no control as well. Right, yeah, right. And, yeah. to real, and to come those to face, face with our lack of control, you yeah. know, and certainty, which, we, which are really illusions in many ways, right? Mm. Yeah. No. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> exactly. The illusions we might have had prior to a few weeks ago are yeah. now definitely gone, right? Yeah. And what, one thing I do want to emphasize is to keep in mind that, um, you know, in our study, we were asking about adults' experiences, memories about their childhood. And a lot of people will say, well, that's not valid because maybe it was positive and they just don't remember it. 
And so from a neurobiologic point of view, from an epigenetic point of view, it's the experience that has the currency to turn off or on the impact of our experience on our body. It's your experience. It's not the event. It's how you experienced it. And people experience uh, similar events differently. Yep. So it's not enough to say, someone might look in and say, oh, well, you have lots of positive experiences. What are you talking about? It doesn't matter. It's what did I experience? And so when we're with each other to check in on that experience and to honor it and not just assume that, well, you know, I did this, so you should be happy. It's not about those things. It's about what are we actually experiencing and being curious about that and Mm. trying to really actually create that sense of positive experience. And then usually that is through connection, even around what's hard. So it's what we took in, built our beliefs and identity around that's knocking around in our nervous system all the time. It's not what we think should be happening and is happening maybe even on the surface. No, such an important distinction and, and one that so few people really fully understand. So, and, and this, this understanding of the, that it's a double dynamic. It's mm-hmm. not just absence of disease or not absence of the negative, but the presence of the positive and that we always have the capacity to boost that experience. That's yeah, and to, so not, go into, and to yeah. not go into bypassing because a lot of people will, mm. you know, mm. be in a, in a denial of feelings that are hard yep. and call that positive. That's actually bypassing. I'm talking Great about point. the coexistence. Great. The coexistence. Mm-hmm. Right. Very powerful. Uh, so as we, you know, we're, we're getting through this experience. Uh, mm-hmm. As you look into the future, I'm assuming that at some point in the future, things will return to a different state. We're not going to be locked down for the rest of our lives, I presume. But as you sort of look into the future and what, what we gain out of this experience, what are some of your hopes for how we move forward and what insights we take forward out of this yeah. whole experience? Yeah, I mean, it might not come as a surprise what I'm going to say, given our conversation. But I would like to just recall that out of every big trauma we have experienced as a people, we've had things come out of it that have been positive. Mm. So, you know, in World War II, we had sort of new social programs that had to come about to support people to get back on their feet. That turned out to be absolutely essential I know in my childhood, I would not probably be alive without Medicaid. Well, I mean, I, I took advantage of every single social program that didn't exist until after World War II. And so in this experience, what's going to be really important is to take stock of it. You know, just like in our truth and reconciliation processes that we need to do in our communities that have faced so much adversity. The first step is to presence what has been how we experienced it, to co-sense that, and then come to a place of of creating a new vision and intention. After having honored the experience, we don't just bypass it. So for me, my hope is that we will take seriously that we have been through an experience, that we will co-sense what we went through, how that hooked up to the path, the things that we see as challenges that, and together come up with the answer to the question you're asking but with intention and certainly to continue to give the rightful place 
to relationship and to the power we each have. I mean, they say that the power in our little atom is bigger than a neutrium nuclear bomb or something. I don't know what the <laughs> physics are, but from a physics point of view, we are so powerful, but we tend to diminish our power and the way that we are with ourselves, each other, being at the watch of how I'm turning my experience into a, a belief, a way of being, and to become really willing to use this as an opportunity to innovate around how we are, how we are with each other, and particularly to honor the need to create these ways of staying connected, even in physical distance. I mean, it could turn out that the culture decides that shaking hands is no longer the way we do things. And there may be a lot more mask wearing. I mean, it could happen. There are cultures that have more of that. So we might come up with other rituals and maybe it will create a, a, a greeting ritual that is far more sincere than the ritual we've had of shaking hands. You know, in some cultures, they bow to each other. Who knows what we'll do? But I do know <laughs> that um, if we stay connected to our experience, come together to discern that and to then intentionally co-create something different based on what we've learned, that we will be in a better place. I do hope there's more virtual healthcare and, and things like that because there are a lot of people who don't access services. We know, like, for example, in California, about half the children who need well-child care services, where a lot of these kinds of things can be talked about to support families, don't happen. Um, they're in rural areas, so we can create new models of, of virtual services Right now, it would be great to be doing that, right? But we're kind of putting everything on hold um, when it's needed more than ever. So I do hope there'll be some innovations in our workplaces to create uh, maybe more working at home where people can understand that they can be trusted. Because if it is being building trust right now, just when you build those routines in a family today, if you, if you show that you can be trusted... In this new context, then I think that employers might have a better sense of being able to give people more flexibility and maybe more productivity will come out. So we could go on and on about, you know, how we can benefit from what we think of as difficult now going forward. Um, but if anything, we need to honor that we are, we really are critical to one another and we need one another. Wow. Very inspiring. And Thank you. Uh, thanks so much for your insights uh, and for all of the great work you're doing. It, it is very exciting. It's been very inspiring to us as we, we think about it, and we are very much looking to forward to hosting you in mm -hmm. real life <laughs> when, once we move through all of this. Uh, before we close, any other, any other thoughts or final well, you comments know, you'd like to share? I did, I did have one thought that came up, and this is also from an article that we did in Health Affairs in May of last year. And the title of it was almost embarrassing. It's like, why would you have to do a research study to say this? But it was really family resilience and parent-child mm. connection. Mm. Um, foster child flourishing, even amid adversity. And that was, this was a study that was based on children, not like the other study that was based on adult report. And that family resilience was really defined as talking about things that are hard, like we talked about, thinking about resources and ways that you can actually address the problem together, which brings a lot of innovation. That's play right there because you don't know what will come up. Uh, knowing that you have resources to draw on and really identifying them and taking advantage of them. And there's a lot of resources we have that we don't necessarily know about until we say, well, what are my resources? 
Mm-hmm. I have a lot more resources, especially if I count like, you know, the view out of my apartment. I don't, I live in a pretty urban area, but I have a view of a nice little light up there. And if I really take that in, it will help me, right? That's a small yeah. thing. But the other is staying hopeful during difficult times. And so in our study, there was a surprising number of families that did not demonstrate resilience, and especially around the staying hopeful in difficult times. It's very important that we foster the fan of our hope. And, you know, that's really Uh, that, you know, we will learn, we will grow, and that that had a direct impact on child flourishing in such a strong way, and then in turn on their ability to learn and stay engaged in school. So to really, really honor the importance of the, the, the causal chain between how we are in adversity and how we flourish and then how we're able to be and produce in the world and learn and grow and contribute to the world is very important and they're all intimately connected. That's maybe mm. my final <laughs> comment. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, very powerful. And, and your work, as I said, is very inspiring. So, so thank you. Thank, thank you again you, for spending Larry. this time with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do want to say thank you to our, our listeners for joining Community Connection and our conversation with Dr. Christina Bethel. You can find out more about Christina's work on the resource pages at pinetreeinstitute.org, which has several links to her research and other talks she's given. Uh, Also has a lot of other resources on ACEs and trauma-informed care. So uh, thank you for joining us, and we hope that everyone stays happy and well. Thank you so much, and Christina, thank you again for being with us. Thank you, and good health. Thank you.